15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. And we are going to begin with the Friday morning. So something that would have happened 2,000 years ago in the morning. Already Jesus has been arrested. We, we know that he spent that evening first having a, a Passover meal with his disciples. And then he went up to the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the olive press, where he spent the evening praying earnestly, zealously, God, if there's any way we can do this differently. I know this is why I came, but if there's any way we can do this differently, can we do it that way? And yet, not my will but yours be done. And ultimately he submits when he sees the, the Roman guards along with the Jewish leaders and one of his own disciples, a guy named Judas Iscariot, coming forward. And he just says, okay, you know, here we go. And he is arrested. He's ultimately brought before the leaders of the Sanhedrin. They declare him to be a, a false messiah, a heretic, and somebody deserving of death because he claims to be the son of God. How audacious is that? And ultimately, we will pick up the story here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, along with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin. So we basically have all of the Jewish religious elite gathered together, and they've, they've got Jesus in chains, and they made their plans. So they bound Jesus, and they led him away. And handed him over to Pilate. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, Pilate is not, doesn't work for an airline. He is the Roman governor over that whole region. He basically has the voice of Caesar in Jerusalem. They led him before Pilate. And Pilate, who has been kind of prompted, the reason that he, we brought him before you is because he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, okay, well, I'll ask him. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Jesus replied, well, you've said so. And then the chief priests accused him of many things. And so Pilate looked again, looked at Jesus and said, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. In other words, do you want to speak up for yourself? You're just standing there. And it, this reminds me because Jesus does not try to make a case for himself. He doesn't try to talk his way out of what's coming. And it reminds me of something that the prophet Isaiah wrote some 600 years before this when he was talking about the suffering Messiah. And he said that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he would remain silent. And so Jesus, like this lamb to the slaughter, keeps his mouth shut. Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. He's used to people groveling and begging, I suppose. Verse 6, now it was the custom of the festival of Passover to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Are you going to release somebody for us? And Pilate says, sure. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, this so-called uh, Jesus? Pilate asked, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What should I do then with the one called the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Well, why? 
What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now, it's one thing to read this. And many of us have probably, as you've been doing devotionals or something, have probably read this story maybe once or even a couple of times over this week. Uh, but there's something else about experiencing it, seeing it through fresh eyes. And, uh, and so a couple of, maybe a decade ago now, uh, there was a movie called The Passion of the Christ that came out. And we are not going to watch any of the parts that are truly difficult to watch. But I want us to watch this scene in particular, this exchange. And I want to let you know up in advance that they are speaking in Latin and Aramaic. So you're not going to understand what they're saying. But we just read what they're saying. And there will be subtitles for those of you with young eagle eyes. The rest of you, I just want you to experience what it might have been like to be sitting in that crowd listening to this exchange going on. Let's go ahead and show it. I wonder what was going through the mind of Barabbas when he began to hear the crowd shouting his name, right? He's probably standing there going, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, they love me. They want me, right? They, they, yeah, they're my people. And I wonder if the people really were all that excited about freeing Barabbas. Or if perhaps they, they just did not want Jesus at all. And, and, and they, they wanted to see Jesus silenced. More than they wanted to free Barabbas. I don't know that it was really about him so much as it was about the fact that Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Remember, just five days before, on, on this Palm Sunday, as he's entering in, he's got crowds of people waving palm branches in the air, basically saying, you are Judas Maccabeus, re, reborn. You are going to be our conquering king who's going to redeem us. And who's going to throw off Rome. And we are going to become the most powerful nation in the world again. Just like God promised. Because he promised to send a Messiah. Who would save us. And yet over the course of those five days. As they spent time with Jesus. As Jesus spent more time. Basically upturning the tables in the, in the temple. Cleaning stuff out. Pointing out the inconsistencies with the Jewish religious elite, they began to recognize that he was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. That he was not their conquering king who was going to come on the back of a horse with a sword and overcome Rome. And because of that, he was a danger. He spent so much time challenging the, the religious elite and the status quo. That for them, Jesus needed to be silenced because he threatened to kind of upturn the, the delicate balance under the Roman occupation where at least the Jews still had a little bit of authority. And Jesus threatened to, to topple that. And so he had to be silenced. Then again, if you think about it, Barabbas was a rebel Somebody who had been willing to take up the sword. Somebody who had been willing to kill. So perhaps they really did want him to be their Messiah instead. So maybe they really wanted him. But either way, as they begin to shout the name of Barabbas, as he, as he had the chains released from around his neck, I wonder what was going through his mind because he knew he was guilty. 
He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he deserved to die. He woke up that morning knowing he was going to the cross and suddenly he was being given a reprieve. Suddenly the chains were being removed. And I wonder what he thought when he looked over and he saw the man who was taking his place. I wonder if he knew that day that an innocent man was dying in his place because he knew he was guilty, guilty as sin. And I wonder if he recognized the irony of an innocent man taking the place of a guilty man. Or did he just look at Jesus as some poor patsy who, who didn't have, you know, the popularity of the crowd and therefore he, his name wasn't called. Did Barabbas even really think that much about Jesus? I don't know that he did. I think he was more focused on the fact that he was free. That the chains were gone and he could go mix back into the crowd. That the people had chosen him. Certainly scripture doesn't say anything about Barabbas appreciating Jesus or recognizing the gravity of what was going on. All it says is that a guilty man was released because an innocent man was going to be put to death in his place. And that was what was going to happen that day. That's ultimately what did happen is an innocent man took the place of a guilty man. And here's the crazy part about all of this. Jesus was okay with it. In fact, it's the very reason that some 33 years before the divine Logos, the word of God through which the world was spoken into existence, took on human flesh and began to walk amongst us. That was the reason Jesus came. Not simply to heal cripples or to drive out demons or to feed crowds or to to start an uprising. Jesus came ultimately to die for Barabbas. And every other rebellious image bearer of God that had wandered far from home. That's why Jesus came. And so he was okay with the fact that he, an innocent man, was taking a guilty man's place. And that he was going to give his life. And as I think about this guy, Barabbas, I begin to recognize that I, I am Barabbas. Right? No, I may not have murdered anybody. But Jesus said that if you harbor bitterness and anger in your heart towards somebody, you have committed murder. And so, guilty. I may not have rebelled against Rome or America or whomever it is that I, I need to submit to, but I have certainly rebelled against my Father God. I have rebelled against my Creator. I thought, I, you know, yes, in my head, I assent. I call you my God. I want to submit to you and follow you. But I often choose to do what I know I should not do. And because of that, I am a rebel. And I deserve death. And I have a feeling I'm, I am not alone in this room. And so I am Barabbas. And on that day when Jesus took his place, he also took my place on the cross. Jesus gave his life for me. One of the things I appreciate about Jesus is he accepted the fact that God would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas in order for him to be able to treat Barabbas like Jesus. 
And so he willingly said, it's okay. But that's not the only reason why I, I, I recognize my identity with Barabbas. Because the reality is we, we don't know a lot about this guy. This is the only kind of moment we hear his name or hear about him. We don't know much of his backstory. But what we do know, we know his name. Barabbas. And you go, why does that matter? What, what, what's in a name, right? But there's a lot in a name. In, in English, which is taken from the Greek translation, we call him Barabbas. But in Aramaic, the, the language that they would have been speaking, uh, his name is pronounced Baraba. You go, so? Well, in Aramaic, Bar means son of, and Abba means daddy or father. Barabbas' name is son of a father. Well, which father? Like, who, who was his father? Or we don't know who his father was. He was just some son of a dude. And I would imagine in, in a culture like Israel that, that's all about honor and shame, on that day, on a day that he was going to be killed as a rebel, whoever his father was probably wasn't all that interested in claiming him as his son anyway. But what's really ironic about the son of some father Standing up there is that he's standing next to a man who knows very clearly who his father is, right? Jesus is there in chains with people crying, crucify him specifically because Jesus has claimed that the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who breathed life into humanity is his father. So you have... The son of some father standing next to the son of God. But what, what is truly powerful about this is that God specifically sent his one and only son, his only begotten son, which means the only one that has not been adopted into his family. God sent him to take on flesh and ultimately die on a cross like a criminal. For Barabbas, so that Barabbas could not just simply be son of some father, but to become the son of the father. He sent Jesus to die in order to claim Barabbas. And in that sense, I once again identify with Barabbas, and I bet you do too. Because Jesus' willingness to die on the cross, you and I have the ability to become bar Abba's sons and daughters of the Father. We prodigals who have made a whole lot of mistakes, who have chosen um, to disobey quite often, we prodigals get to come home and be adopted back into his family. We, we rebels are given another chance. We're given grace. And grace is one of those things that we often have a hard time with. I, I would imagine that many of us in this room probably don't feel worthy of God's grace. Probably don't feel worthy of Jesus dying in our place. We struggle with it because, you know, he didn't deserve it. Barabbas did. He didn't deserve it. I do. But that's the beauty of grace, is that it is undeserved. If, if it was deserved, it was, if it was something that we could earn, then it wouldn't be grace at all, would it? It would be payment 
for, for good behavior. What is truly audacious about the gospel message, what is truly audacious about Good Friday and the cross is that people who did not deserve it were given grace anyway. That an innocent man gave his life for those who were guilty. And he did it willingly. Why? Because God loves us so much that while we were still in open rebellion, he died for us. He gave his life for us. That is the extent of the Father's love. No, it's not something you can earn. No, it's not something that you can do enough good things to become worthy of. And that's what makes it truly grace. That's what makes it a gift. And so all we're left to be able to do is say thank you and receive it, right? Because any of you who have ever given a gift, what is it that you are hoping for from the person you're giving the gift to? Do you want them to say, oh, you know what? I don't deserve this. Hold on. Let me, let me give you a gift back so that, you know, it can be equitable. No, what are you looking for? This is the interactive portion. <laughs> Excitement? Excitement? What? You would want them to accept it, wouldn't they? Wouldn't you? Would you want them to be be grateful for it? Would you? Maybe the the best thing you can say to somebody who is trying to give you a gift that is far more extravagant than you could ever possibly deserve is simply to say, "Wow, thank you." And that's all the Father asks for from us. Is not for us to earn it. Is not for us to do enough good things to be deserving of it. Is not for us to do backflips in order to, to make him go, yep, that one was worthy of it. It's simply to say thank you because it is an audacious gift of grace. So you don't have to do anything to earn it. And if you have yet to take hold of that gift that Jesus bought and paid for with his body... It's as simple as saying, God, thank you for giving your life for me. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life. And I, 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 want to, I want to follow you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Here's the beautiful thing about being Christ followers some 2,000 years after this happened. Is that we know how the story ends. And we know that Friday isn't the last word in this. That Sunday's coming. This is a dark day, but Sunday's coming. And when, and on Sunday, we celebrate the fact that that Savior who gave his life for us also rose from the dead so he can continue to be the Lord of our life. He can continue to guide our steps. He can continue to show us how to be the, the, the kind of husband, the kind of wife, the kind of son or daughter, the kind of employee, the kind of student, the kind of follower that he has invited us to be because we're his kids. And our lives get to become an expression of representing our Father's heart. We become part of the family. And we do it imperfectly. None of us does it perfectly. Not even Merv. He's pretty close. But none of us do it perfectly. But we call this day good. Not because, you know, it was comfortable for Jesus. It was anything but. We call this day good because guilty men and women, sinners are declared, declared saints, rebels, are released from the imprisonment of our sins. And prodigals are invited to come home because of Jesus' love for us, because of our Father's unwillingness to give up on us. And that's why it's good. And, and interestingly, on the night before all of this happened, on the night before Jesus bled out on a cross for us, 
on a night before he, he, was, he was beaten and mocked and spat upon and, and whipped and ultimately had to drag the implement of his death through the city streets with people jeering at him. And ultimately, the, the night before he hung on a cross suffocating under the weight of our sins, Jesus had a meal with his closest disciples. It was a Passover meal, which is interesting because today, around the world, uh, Jews are celebrating the Passover. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Passover um, is a celebration of a time in Israel's history where God intervened and redeemed them out of slavery. It, it, they were enslaved in Egypt, and it was backbreaking. They were dying left and right. They had a, a, a ruler like, like Rome, but the ruler's name was Pharaoh, who was driving them into the grave and demanding that they serve him. And ultimately, God said, I'm going to redeem my people out of slavery. And I'm going to lead them to the promised land. And he did so through a, a number of plagues. There were 10 of them. And each of them, if you look at them, were actually targeting a different one of Egypt's so-called gods. The last of which was Pharaoh himself, who was believed to be a god incarnate. And that last plague was a plague where all the firstborn in Egypt would die, including the firstborn of Pharaoh who was supposed to be a deity in the flesh. And on the night that the, the angel of the Lord was going to pass through Israel, all of the Israelites were to take a pure and spotless lamb that had been staying in their home for about a week. They'd become really familiar with this lamb. They were to take its life and collect the blood and put it on the door frame of their home, marking their home as a home that believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a home that believed in God. And when the angel of the Lord passed through, taking the firstborn life, when he saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that home. So in a, in a meal where they were celebrating that, Jesus recognizing that he, that, that that was just foreshadowing, right? Do you, do you begin to see the foreshadowing of what was coming? Jesus recognized, I am the Passover lamb, the final one. No other lambs will have to give their lives so that their blood can mark door frames in order to protect people. It is my blood that will mark my people so that the wrath of God so that the penalty of their sins will no longer need to weigh upon them and they will be released from captivity. And so on that night before Jesus was arrested, he, he took a couple of the elements of that meal, a, a loaf of bread and, and a cup of wine, and he, he gave them new meaning. First, he, he took the bread and he said, this bread symbolizes my body, which I'm going to give for you. They had no idea what he meant by this at this point, but they would 24 hours later. This bread symbolizes my body that's going to be given for you. And every time you eat this part, remember me and remember the sacrifice I'm making. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup symbolizes my blood 
that is going to cleanse you and establish a new covenant. And not a covenant where you have to follow the rules in order to be declared righteous in God's sight. As if you have to build some sort of a ladder of good deeds to earn your way into heaven. No, no, no. This new covenant will be a covenant of grace. Where we know you're a sinner. But because I am dying in your place, you're now declared a saint. You may be a rebel, but you are now declared free. You once were a prodigal wandering far from home, but now you can come home. Because you are God's son. You are his daughter. You are his bar Abba. And he loves you. And that's why I'm doing this. So I'm going to invite Byron and Diane and and the Bloods to come forward. And and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I'm going to invite us as a family to come forward and to take the communion elements. And then once we all have them, you can go back to your seats. We're going to take communion together as a tangible reminder of the greatest act of love in history. When Jesus took our place so that we could become Bar Abba's sons and daughters of the Father. All right, so let me pray for us and then you guys can come get the communion elements. Father God, I am so grateful that you don't give up on us. I'm so grateful that before we were ever born, before we ever recognized that we were living in sin, you already sent Jesus to die in our place so that we rebels prodigals could be declared your sons and your daughters and we could come home we could stop running and we could just do life with you thank you for giving your life for us jesus thank you for leading us back to the father and we want to take these uh, we want to remember you tonight on this painfully good friday jesus in your holy name amen When you're ready, I invite you to come forward and get the communion element.